At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 585th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is transforming industrial agriculture. We're talking with Eddie Badrina about growing vertically in greenhouses. Eddie is a graduate of Texas A&M University and the Bush School for Government and Public Service. He has had mission-critical roles at the U.S. Department of State, executive leadership at a White House initiative, and director-level positions at two successful startups. And he is CEO of Eden Green Technology, a vertical farming technology company dedicated to changing the way we farm our food and feed our communities. Welcome to the show today, Eddie. Are you ready to rock hydroponics? I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Awesome. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Absolutely. So uh, I spent the first couple of years in my uh, professional career up in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. I was an analyst for the State Department uh, covering the Middle East and a variety of other topics, and then switched over to the White House, where I was President Bush's Asian American spokesperson. I ran his White House initiative for Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders for two wow. years. And uh, from there, I moved back to Texas, uh, was in a little bit of, uh, and I think many of your or uh, audience can can relate. I was in a little bit of a uh, a, a wilderness, if you will, a, a transitionary uh, career wilderness, trying to figure out what I was really good at, what uh-huh. I wanted to do, uh, and then how you know how I can monetize that. So I spent a couple of years uh, doing strategic development for uh, a bank here, and then jumped off to be the director of comms uh, at a telecom startup here in Dallas, and then. After that, I figured I could do it on my own. Uh, that telecom startup was really a chance for me. It was my MBA of, of hard knocks <laughs> right? Uh, from, the sco- for, from the school of hard knocks. I, I learned finance. I learned operations, sales, how to run a business, uh, investor relations, all that stuff. So uh, uh, probably a little bit of uh, confidence, maybe a little bit of uh, naivete, but I figured I could do it on my own. So I, I started a uh, communications and marketing consultancy, and then joined up with my business partner uh, at the time in 2010. I started a digital agency uh, called BuzzShift. We ran that for six years. Uh, we sold it. And then 11 months later, we bought it back, oh my which is gosh. a whole, whole other story. Uh, but while I was doing that, uh, I had met a number of folks uh, in the investment world and then honestly in the, in the ag world. And 
uh, as I was coming out of that, uh, after we bought it back, I was able to take a step back from that and think, uh, what, what could I be doing uh, that has an impact on the world around me, oh, exponential man. to my to my level of effort, right? So, uh, not a lot of you know people ask like, how did you get in this? I, I have a degree from A and M, uh, but how did you get into urban agriculture? And it really uh, the business that I uh, had was running and was able to just afford me uh, the ability to step back and really take a look at what I wanted to do uh, in addition to that. So there are three things that had been put on uh, my heart. One is I wanted to run a software or hardware business. I'd done professional services, been there, done that, got the M&A t-shirt. <laughs> the, second, the second is I wanted to have an exponential impact uh, of my level of effort. So for every one unit of effort that I put in, I wanted to have a 10 or 20x return on my level of impact on the community and society around me. Uh, and then the third, I just wanted to be a part of and help build a unique company culture uh, that was redemptive uh, to uh, to society or around it. And so Eating Green came along and had an opp- opportunity to jump on board as CEO. And that's where I've been for the past 14 months. Wow. You and I have a little bit of a similar background. I ran tech- several technology companies in the 80s and 90s. And by the end of the 90s, I was looking at it thinking, you know, this isn't really contributing to the world. I need to do something mm. that contributes to the world. And I absolutely love the way that you presented it a moment ago. Thanks for that. You're welcome. You're welcome. It's, it, you know, there's, there's a, there's a weight and there's a responsibility and there's a, an absolute joy in uh, running a company that's, that's putting food on 25, 30, 40 people's, you know, and their, their family's tables. And there's, there's a, there's a value in that. But like you said, I think both of us probably took a step back and said, okay, there's that, and that's really useful, and it's valuable as a business owner. It's valuable as uh, an economic creator, an economic engine within our community. But is there something even greater than that? And yeah. so that's what I was looking at before I got into Eden Green. Nice. So what is Eden Green? So Eden Green is a we're a turnkey vertical farming technology, and what I mean by that is uh, we are able to build and manage and then uh, license our technology of these acre and a half greenhouses that can be put almost anywhere in the world, can be put in urban environments, suburban environments. Uh, And what they do is basically they shrink down 35 acres of traditional farming and harvesting into an acre and a half. So if you think about, uh, if you think about one of our acre and a half greenhouses, which are standard size modules, is they produce right around, depending on the, on the vegetable, right around a million pounds of leafy greens a year. What? That, yes, a million pounds out of an acre <laughs> wow. and a half. And that's, that's equivalent to roughly 35 traditional farming acres. What's not equivalent is our, our environmental uh, sustainability compared to a traditional farming uh, setup. So uh-huh. traditional farm, that size, 35 acres, a million pounds of leafy greens, consumes around 870,000 gallons of water a year. Wow. Our, our acre and a half uh, facility producing the same amount of harvest uh, consumes only 90,000 gallons of water a year. And your household and my household on average consume 45,000 gallons of water a year each. <laughs> so two households of water can produce a million pounds of leafy greens in one of our greenhouses. And we do that through these 
uh, patented 18-foot vertical towers. I mean, they are tall. It's just a wall of greens. If you ever have a chance to come down to Fort Worth, Texas, uh, I'd be happy to give you a tour, any, any of you, your listeners or you, uh, and you can see these walls of greens in action. How cool is that? So you're actually going vertical. We are going vertical. So, so most traditional uh, greenhouses that you see, and even the, the one of the more advanced ones, uh, you know, uh, out in Kentucky, App Harvest is building these huge 60-acre farms, which is fantastic. Uh, they work with square feet. We yeah. work with cubic feet, right? So, yeah. so our ability to work with cubic feet adds uh, exponential density to our uh, to our greenhouse, and then it makes it that much more efficient. Wow, I'll bet. And you're using sunlight then. These are in greenhouses. These are not in warehouses. Absolutely. So we, uh, we use sunlight complemented with grow light. So uh, sunlight, obviously, there's a consistency factor yep. uh, from a commercial perspective that needs to happen. And so what we found is we've been able, just through our technology, we've been able to harness sunlight as much as we can and uh, then complement it with grow light. What that does for us is it combines... Uh, the efficiency, the, uh, the energy efficiency of a greenhouse uh, with the uh, harvest and density of your fully controlled environment ag, ag platforms. So a lot, of, uh, a lot of what you see in these fully enclosed ones with grow lights, all grow lights, no mm-hmm. natural sunlight, is that their electricity costs are on par with data centers. Right. They're enormous. And so you question like, okay, uh, you're, you're growing a lot, you have a smaller land footprint and you're growing much more than a traditional farm, but, but you're using so much energy. So there's a trade-off there in terms of sustainability, uh, both, uh, both environmental as well as economic. I mean, it takes uh, a lot of cash to install those lights. Uh, those lights are expensive. And then it takes, uh, it takes a lot of overhead to run those lights for the amount of time that's needed if it's fully enclosed. Right. So we've been able to solve for that by using mostly sunlight and then complementing with grow light. How cool is that? And what, what do you see as a future for vertical farming and agriculture? Where are we going with this? So we, we think it is the future. We don't think it's the silver bullet, uh, but we do think it's the future for a lot of, uh, of commercial agriculture. And so there are two reasons for that. If you look at the overall market trends and the overall demographic trends, you're seeing an uptick in population. Uh, you're seeing a, a, uh, a magnetizing towards an attraction towards urban centers. Even with the pandemic, people are moving, you know, they're just moving from one urban center to another. Maybe yeah. they're going more suburban, but the reality is they're, they're within at least 40 miles of an, of an urban center. So you've got an uptick in population. You've got an uptick in urban or suburban living. And at the same time, you've got a downtick in the amount of arable land. You've got a downtick in the amount of usable topsoil. I think the UN estimates is we're going to run out of uh, usable, like the first layer of usable top, natural usable topsoil in 60 to 100 years. It's not that far away. If it lasts that long. And if it lasts that long, right. Uh, and, then, and then all combined with that, you've got increasingly volatile weather patterns right? Climate change. And then lastly, it's a consumer uh, trend. People want more and more. I've seen anywhere, uh, I've got folks, friends in the industry who are seeing a 4X increase, 400% increase in the demand for locally grown foods here yes. in the U.S. So you combine all of those trends together 
and there's this huge delta of supply and demand. And the, the only thing that can fill that delta in is vertical farming, is enclosed agriculture. It, that, it's, the, it's really the only solve for it uh, in combination with your traditional farming. It's the perfect thing to do in cities because we have such shortness of land. We just don't have a whole lot more land. So what do we do? Exactly. And so, you know, when you think about these, one of our modules, the great thing about it is an acre and a half uh, is not that much land when you really think about it. So uh, if you can put an acre and a half, uh, not not 2,000 miles away, but 20 miles away mm-hmm. from the people who need it, all of a sudden you're shortening the supply chain, which is we've seen in COVID, uh, because of COVID, the supply chain has become, has just been exposed as more fragile than we thought it was. Oh, big time. Uh, we're getting we're getting shortages of everything, right? Chipotle is running out of romaine lettuce, whole foods. Some of the, you know, some of the leafy greens are just, the walls are bare because people uh, can't get them or they, as soon as they get them in, they sell out. I mean, and then, and then that's not even to mention the the basic necessities like toilet paper and paper towels, (laughs) all that stuff. Right. So, so we're seeing a fragility in the supply chain because of the length of the supply chain, as well as because of the pressures put on that length of supply chain. So if you can cut that supply chain down uh, by a factor of 10, then all of a sudden uh, you, are, you are upping the uh, supply that actually goes into the system. And then you know, the other thing too is uh, loss. When you have to transport that amount of uh, fresh produce, that amount of miles, yep. you're going to lose. Uh, I mean, I, 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 the industry average in the grocery and retail industry is like, they account for anywhere from 30 to 40% loss. Isn't that amazing? Which is I mean, it Horrendous. is incredible. Yeah. So in our greenhouses, our conservative loss estimate in our greenhouse is 3% conservative. Mm. And it's probably even lower than that. But we just, for for projection's sake, we say 3%. Now, if you're only losing 3% uh, in the greenhouse, and then it's 20 miles away to the distribution center or to the store, you, you, your, loss, your losses go down uh, exponentially as well. That is why we think vertical farming is the future. Nice. And what is the difference in safety of the products? I just saw a recall mm-hmm. of 3,200 units of basil yeah. because of potential contamination. I suspect there's a, a different level of safety here as well. Yeah, you bring up a really good point. So safety is, uh, there's, t- there's a number of ways that uh, our, our greens are safer. First is they're grown in a facility that's not exposed to the elements. So we know of farms, organic and conventional, uh, that have had uh, recalls, not because of something that they were necessarily doing to their plants or land, but because of environmental factors around, like what's in the air around it. Uh, I saw one report about, it wasn't from the farm, it was from the farms around them. There was runoff from the farms, the cattle farms around them, that seeped into their groundwater and then contaminated their plants. Wow. Right? So, so there are a lot of factors that even these organic farms, they want to control, but they can't. Uh, and we only give our plants what they need when they need it uh, and in an optimal way. And so there's a safety aspect to it, which if you walk into our greenhouse, you look at any of those photos, I mean, it is as clean as you can possibly get for an ag, uh, an ag industry. And then the second factor is if it's clean inside there 
and you have a minimal amount of time in the supply chain, uh, then the cleanliness uh, also extends to that supply chain, right? All right. If it's only in the supply chain for 48 or 72 hours, there's a much less chance of outside contaminants uh, getting on it. Uh, and then when it goes into the grocery store, then it's ready to go or it goes into a bag, it's ready to go. So uh, we, we think uh, because of the way we have a culture of food safety at Eating Green Technologies, it's not just a program, it's, it's a whole culture. And on my weekly staff meetings, the first guy up to talk uh, that I call on is our food safety director. Oh, nice. He's a dedicated food safety director, and he's the first one that talks because that we are con- so consumer focused that that mm-hmm. has to be. I mean, that has to be at the top of our minds. And you, you touched on what an experience might be walking into one of your greenhouses. Can you tell me what that might, experience might be and how it might smell and look? Sure. So I'll, I'll, I'll try to paint a verbal picture for you and your audience. So uh, you walk into our, uh, one of our greenhouses. When you open the door, what, probably the thing that you notice immediately is they're trans, it's translucent all the way around. Walls, uh, the, the ceilings, uh, because it's a greenhouse, it's translucent. You walk in the door, and you get a rush of wind out. And all that's right. because our greenhouses have positive pressure. right? What that does is that keeps the ambient temperature more consistent, but it also minimizes the amount of pests and things that are coming in on your clothing, uh-huh. right? Uh uh, it, it minimizes that uh, coming onto you and sort of uh, transporting its way into the greenhouse. So after that rush of wind, you put on your uh, your smocks. We have smocks. We have uh, we have uh, head uh, hair nets, and then we have masks. Uh, and then you walk into a vestibule uh, where you put all that on. You step on a uh, a decontaminant uh, pad right? That, that helps wash the things off of your shoes oh, while you're right. tracking into the greenhouse. Yeah. And then you step in uh, from that vestibule into the greenhouse itself. The next thing you do is you take a hard right to our, uh, to our washing station and you wash your hands and you sing a song and you wash your hands for 20, 30 seconds, <laughs> right. uh, dry, dry them off. Uh, and then you start, uh, you start the tour, you go to work. That's for everyone. That's for any. That's for our workers who go in there. That's for our guests who are in there. Everyone has to go through that process. So from the get-go, and we put the smocks on, uh, not not necessarily because uh, you know we're protecting us, but we're putting the smocks on because we're protecting the plants. Yeah. Right. Anything that you track in, you put a smock over it, and it basically, you know, it just it muffles it, if you will. Right. right. It, it keeps it from transporting through the air. So smocks, hairnets masks and off we go. Uh, so you walk in and uh, you'll see, uh, depending on the greenhouse, you'll see either our propagation row, uh, because that's where we uh, seed the plants and then prop- propagate them until they go into our system. Uh-huh. Uh, or you'll turn the corner uh, and or you'll turn the corner from that propagation row and you'll see 18 uh, foot walls of plants. And, and what you'll see if you look down the rows of that acre and a half is you'll see and rows that are empty, rows that have been just been planted, rows that are growing, and rows that are about to be harvested. So you, so you see sort of this real-time progression of growth uh, if you look down, uh, down the rows because uh, that is, uh, that's what we call our perpetual harvest. Mm-hmm. One of our greenhouses harvests anywhere from 11 to 13 times a year. Our cycles are usually anywhere from 28 to 35 days. 
And so you'll see there workers every day, they're either harvesting, planting, or maintaining uh, the greens that are in there. So you'll see a perpetual harvest all throughout the greenhouse. Wow. So you're getting food all the time. All the time, which is another part of the consistency piece, right? Yep. Uh, when, you can, when you can harvest every week, uh, then you just got a steady flow. It's not in huge bunches where you have to store. You've got a heavy, just a steady flow of leafy greens coming out of harvest and onto trucks and onto the distribution centers. Uh, so that's another great advantage wow, of, no kidding. Uh, of our system. Man, you're making me want to go out and buy one of these things and go for it. Come on. <laughs> we would love it. We so, would love it. So what are you growing? So we commercially viable, we grow around 50 plus varieties of leafy greens, herbs, uh, and then strawberries, actually. Oh, wow. Uh, we're, 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 and in addition, we're testing out peppers. We're testing out uh, other types of varieties. But the great thing about it is we've gotten international attention. And so where some of, uh, some of the folks who are in this space are, are locked into a piece of land, right? Either on the oh, West yeah. Coast, East Coast. Uh, our, our differentiator is that we're mobile and we're flexible. We can put one of these acre-and-a-half greenhouses uh, almost anywhere in the world. We can adjust to local uh, regulations, local building regulations, local coding regulations, but also we can adjust to local cultural tastes and preferences. Mm. So in Asia, they grow a lot of chard. They grow a lot of uh, pak choy. Yep. They grow uh, different types of Asian uh, style mustard greens, mm-hmm. uh, and which we don't eat over here, right? But we can grow them in our system. So our R and D facility in Cleburne is constantly testing out varietals from all around the world, uh, so that we can prove to uh, entrepreneur-led investor groups, we can prove to nonprofits, we can prove to nation states, uh, we can prove to uh, local municipalities that we can grow our greenhouse can grow what they need. Uh, when they need it for the people that they actually they actually want to eat it. Yeah. So there there is this conversation out in the world right now that you know growing leafy greens that's great, but those aren't the staples for our diet. And mm. are, what are you guys doing to address that? So the the trends are actually dictating otherwise. We're seeing growing trends in the want the want for basic wants for leafy greens as opposed to meats. We're seeing the, uh, from an ingredient perspective, a mm-hmm. rise in the need for plant-based meat alternatives. So what we actually think it's, and we're seeing it, there's an unbelievable increase in demand for leafy greens as a basic foodstuff. Wow. Uh, so, and then, and then in, in the rest of the world, besides the United States, <laughs> the vast majority of what they're eating are plant-based Yeah. because they can't, it's, Meat is just expensive, right? We, mm-hmm. we, have, we have first world problems here of choosing, you know, prime versus Angus versus grass fed versus dry aged, all these meats, free range, all, you know, chicken, all that stuff. In the rest of the world, a meat is a luxury. And so they're eating a lot more plant, plant-based meals than we are. And, uh, and so that, that's where we see like, hey, we, this is a basic food source. Uh, lettuce and chards, collard greens, spinach, spinach all, all of those are basic foodstuffs for the vast majority of the world. And are you growing organically? So we are pursuing organic certification. The interesting thing about our industry, it's so new, so nascent, uh, is that there's there's not a, a, a great industry association that's pushing 
uh, oh, that's an right. advocate for for vertical farming. And so the, the organic certification was pushed by the traditional ag uh, you know industry to it, it's it's very useful to to denote how things were grown, but it's also sort of a marketing play. It's not a bad marketing play. I'm right. I'm a marketer. I love it. Yeah. Right. Uh, but but the reality is uh, the there are some uh, qualitative differences in organic versus conventional that at the end of the day they're just that they're qualitative they're, and they're subjective and they're marketing. So we're pushing for that, uh, but we believe we're we're actually better in some senses than organic because again as as we discussed earlier, organic farms can't control the air around them. Right. They can't control the water that's coming, you know, that's being, that's feeding their plants and they can't control the farms around them. So there's a, there's both ab- above ground and below ground uh, external factors that are affecting whether or not they can be organic or not. Whereas ours, we control almost all the factors uh, yeah. that, that our plants are the, both the ambient environment around it, as well as the nutrients, water and you know, and, and that they're going into it. Well, the, the, one of the things that I was targeting with that question was the nutrients. I know that with my tower garden, and I, I have a third of an acre here in Phoenix. It's where my house sits. And so I have, you know, eight or 10,000 square feet of growing in the dirt space. And about eight years ago, I discovered tower gardens and bought one yes. and use it every year. Absolutely love my tower gardens for growing greens. They're, they're wonderful. Yeah. And the conversation about organic there is that these are mineral-based nutrients, so they're not chemical-based nutrients. So I guess that was more the question I had for you about the organic part. The nutrients that you're using, tell me about them. Yeah, so uh, the, it's called fertigation, and uh, the Dutch uh, have really mastered fertigation, both in terms of how the controls and the systems, as well as the nutrients that go into it. So you can actually, and we have uh, organic uh, organic nutrients that go into it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they are they are mineral based, and they are uh, they're all they're nothing of them. Nothing is synthetic, as well as our pest control. Uh, nothing that we use is synthetic. So, but at the end of the day, what we're really wanting to know is what do the plants need to grow the best? Yeah. Let's di- let's dial into that, and let's give them only that stuff, and nothing that they don't need. Uh, and so, you know, the, the nutrients that we give, both in terms of uh, the quantity, parts per million, uh, as well as the, the channel that we give it in, the, the water, uh, where our, our water temperature is optimized for, for both nutrient absorption as well as oxygenation, uh, as well as plant health and uh, minimizing any sort of plant pathogen. Uh-huh. You can't do that in any other system. Right. Or nat- or you know, from a traditional perspective, no farmer can ensure sixty-seven degree waters <laughs> is going going in their plants and they're absorbing it. Right? right, we can we can absolutely do that. So, not only are we are we giving them the right nutrients that are not synthetic, but we're giving them in a way that they're going to be optimally absorbed, uh, and and the plants are aerated as well in a way that's that's optimal for them. So then that that's why we can grow. Uh, plants uh, in 28, 35 days. Yeah. One of the things that I know from growing food and is that we need to be building healthy soil. And that healthy soil has a lot of microorganisms that positively impact the, 
the plants and then positively impact the foods. What do you guys do about that? So that's a, that's a good question. So in traditional farming, what we're finding is, and you've probably seen this as well, is the traditional farming methods are sucking more of those, more of those healthy microorganisms out than they're putting back in, right? Unless you're a totally, you've got very few farms that are actually doing that in a regenerative way. Uh-huh. Uh, and regenerative, regenerative farming is something that's, a, that's really interesting to me as well. But unless you're doing regenerative farming, you're really not getting those microorganisms in anyway. It's, they're being sucked out. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's really comparing. If you want to compare that, then I would compare it to regenerative farming. I would compare all farming, both, both controlled ag as well as traditional, to regenerative farming. That, that is that's more of a, you know, a polar comparison, if you yeah, will. That makes but if sense. you compare ours, if you compare ours to traditional farming, then we're, I think we're, we're better because again, we're putting, we're putting the, the nutrients that they need, uh, into, uh, into the system. When it comes to microorganisms, here's where, again, first world problems, we are splitting hairs when we're talking about good, better, and best. Mm, right? Mm-hmm, right. When you talk about all the great microorganisms, you're going from better to best. We are not, we're not in the business of solving between better and best. We're in the business of solving food shortages. We're in the business of solving in a meaningful and healthy way, right? So most of the rest of the world and honestly, vast parts of America aren't concerned about going from the 90th to the 95th percentile of like optimal health and nutrition for a plant. They want to go from zero to 80. Yeah. And so we're trying to solve for that 80 to 90%, right? We can give them, uh, we can supply greens. Our greenhouses can grow these greens and herbs and berries in such a way that it gives 80 to 90% of optimal, uh, optimal plant health and, and then transfer that into someone's digestive system. Yeah. right onto their plate. That's what we're looking at. So uh, I, you know, I understand and I appreciate people who, you know, and, and especially there's probably a lot of folks in your audience who are really concerned with that and, and rightfully so on a, on a, uh, on an individual basis, you know, in, in, uh, grow of your tower gardens versus, uh, growing in your, you know, growing in in the soil, mm-hmm. and what I would say is that's not scalable to to the population. Yeah. It just isn't. I'm I'm not thinking about folks who, like you and me, have a third, half an acre of of land, and we've got disposable income to 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 buy a, a tower garden. I'm thinking about the single mom or the single dad with three kids living in an apartment that, uh, you know, after their second job, they stop by the bodega or they stop by the uh, by the the grocery store to pick up food really quickly before they can get home and, and cook their dinners, uh, or maybe they're cooking their dinners late. That's who I'm concerned about, and they're going to grab a bag of leafy greens, and they're going to know in their just in the back of their mind, hey, this is healthy. So whether it's conventional, whether it's organic, whether it has all the microorganisms in it, whether it's the 99 percentile of of plant health. They're not concerned about that. They're concerned at a level, a general level of healthiness and of nutrition. That's what we want to address. And get food in their stomachs. Yes. Wow. Good job. That was a great explanation, comparing the different levels of food. I love that. I get asked all the time about people with gardens in their yard and say, well, if I'm gardening in the city, what about all the pollution in the city? And I am a big, big believer that 
no matter where we are in the world, there's pollution and we just have to do our best. And it sounds like that's where you're going is you're doing your best and providing the best quality product that can be produced under our global current circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, us having this, this hybrid solution of greenhouses, which are enclosed, but still using as much natural sunlight as we can, Mm -hmm. uh, is, is, is a great efficient solution to it. Yeah. Good job, man. I love the work you're doing. Man, we, we are super excited about, uh, where this industry is headed and specifically where eating green is headed, uh, in terms of just empowering people, uh, empowering communities, empowering, uh, entrepreneur led investor groups to, to grow their own greens and, and to find ways to sell them and distribute them. Thank you so much for all that great information. I'm going to shift on you now, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. So, uh, in my first business, we set core values of focus and uh-huh. of doing what we do best, right? But as any small business owner will tell you, uh, you're your focus is tempered by, uh, honestly, by cash flow. And uh, we started, we bootstrapped this company, uh, no debt, no lines of credit. And so uh, in the first couple of years, we landed a really big telecom company as a client, uh, really big. But they asked us to do things that were way out of our expertise and scope uh, that by a degree of magnitude, that was too out of focus. Business owners will tell you, like, hey, sometimes you have to say yes and you figure it out on the way, right? And that's totally that's totally feasible, right? But this one was was a, a degree of a difficulty that was that was too out of our focus. So we thought we had made it because of the client's brand recognition, really big brand, and the size of the contract. Uh, but we ended up spending about a year and a half spinning our wheels with it and being really, really inefficient in execution. So the result was there's a great top line revenue, but horrible profit margins. And even worse, our team was burnt out. So it crushed our team's morale by the end of it. And that was, that was our mistake. We, we, we thought the big brand, we thought the big contract uh, was going to fulfill it, but, it, but it, it was contrary to our core values of focus and doing you know, what we do best. So uh, what did I, how do we overcame that? So we actually resigned ourselves from the client to their surprise uh, because it was such a big account. I don't know if any other agency had resigned from, from this client for no other reason than just saying, hey, this is not a right fit. It took us about a quarter to level set our top line revenue for our company. Yep. We had to get really lean and scrappy, but it totally rejuvenated and saved our team in the long run. Um, and, you know, I would, I would, if you asked me, I would do it all over again, knowing what I know about the hit that we took to our top line revenue, totally do it all over again, because it, we learned to focus Mm -hmm. and focus and focus more on our core values and on what we do best. You know, we recently built out our core values, refreshed them and built them out in the last six months. And it has made all the difference in the world in the decisions we're making on moving forward. Absolutely. If you get, if you, and it's, it it can't be just a piece of paper that you post up on your, you know, your wall or, you know, in, in the break room, it's gotta be things that you remind yourself of on every staff call. It's gotta be things that you remind yourself of, of every, you know, monthly review, quarterly review, performance reviews. They've all gotta be just inculcated in your 
uh, in your daily rhythms. And if you, if you can stick to those core values, what happens is it dictates the why of why you make your decisions on a daily, weekly, and monthly basis. Yeah. It dictates who you take on as vendors, dictates who you hire, it dictates who you have to let go, it dictates you know, how you want to respond to market trends. It all stems from core values. Yeah. That's, your, that's your anchor point. That's your North Star. Amen. You know, I, I recently had a customer that wasn't too happy with us. And I shared with them the core values that we created and said, this is, this is who we are and this is where we come from. And, you know, I don't really know how it landed with them because they just went away. But in me sharing that, it was that view from the outside looking in was a huge thing for me. It was like, wow, this mm-hmm. is really cool. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I bet. What do you consider your biggest success? So this sounds odd, but every year at Christmas, my family and I, we get cards from all of our friends uh, in the United States and around the world, actually. Uh-huh. Enough cards to fill up an entire wall of our entryway. Like, it's, it's incredible. Uh, it sounds silly, but I love seeing those cards from all around the world uh-huh. uh, because it represents the friendships that we've made and kept and deepened over you know, our 20 years of marriage uh, and our, our, our 20 years of family. So we, in turn, send out close to probably 250 to 300 Christmas cards a year. Uh, it's kind wow. of fun. Uh, but uh, I think that that is my biggest success, I feel like, uh, is those wonderful relationships uh, and the depth of those. Yeah, love that. And what drives you? What drives me? So my, my faith drives me. Now, I, I follow Jesus, and he just asked his followers to do everything with excellence and diligence, mm-hmm. just because it reflects a thankfulness and a gratitude for the gifts that have been given to us. So I just try to operate out of a posture of gratitude to contribute to the community around me uh, with with excellence and with uh, diligence and consistency. Yeah. That, that's what drives me. That's how I try to operate. Nice. So gr- living a life of gratitude is transforming. Uh, that I know. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it totally changes how you treat people, how you look at people. When you live a life of gratitude, you look at people with a sense of grace and mercy rather than uh, rather than disdain or uh, adversarial or, you know, what's their problem, right? Yeah, right. Uh, it, 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 it totally changes your posture and it changes your posture with your, your, with your partner, with your spouse, with your family. Uh, and you just have more compassion because yeah. you know they're going through something or probably, you know, when it comes to my family, it, it's probably because of me, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so, uh, so it makes me, makes me look in the mirror, uh, but, that, but that thankfulness and gratitude allows me to look at them and myself with a sense of compassion. Yeah, wow. And if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Man, this this is a hard one. I've got so many books. Right. This is you know, why I uh, ask it. Golly. So there's a there's a book called Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss, who's a former FBI negotiator. Uh-huh. Probably one of the best negotiation books you'll ever read. Uh, and for business people, for business leaders, it's I think it's an absolutely essential book uh, in your library because everyone negotiates every day every with your day. employees, your vendors, with clients, whatever. But the, but the one that I think is really, really just reference material is Principles by Ray Dalio. 
it's it's probably the ultimate reference book for business leaders and and business owners. Nice. And why is that? So one, he has a wealth of experience. He's very he runs Bridgewater, which is one of the largest funds in the world. But he's just very humble, uh, and he's got a great uh, philosophy and posture about how he runs his business. But the second thing is it's how it's structured. So the beginning of the book. It actually has, and he tells you, hey, don't read this book from end to end. Here's a table of contents. Here's it drilled down by subtopic. Flip through those, and when you need to reference a specific topic, look for it, and then go straight to that chapter, straight to that section. Don't try to read this thing end to end. So he's written a business book, and he's written, honestly, it's, uh, it's in a sense, autobiographical because it really runs through how he, how he started the business, how he runs the business how he treats his employees, all that good stuff. But he does it in a way that uh, in the very front and uh, from the outset says, hey, this, this is how you can reference it. I don't want you to read it through and through. I want you to pick and choose. Uh, and so that because of that, it just makes for a great business reference book. Nice. And the name of the book and the author again? Uh, it's Principles by Ray Dalio. Nice. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Mm. I would say to remind yourself that each of you are valuable and that you're made for something special. I mean, you're so valuable. Each of us is so valuable that we've all been given a set of innate gifts. And when you can focus on those gifts and what you do really, really well and strive for, for just ever more excellence in it, it will absolutely bless those around you. Uh, And that discipline and that focus on those gifts will actually free you up to innovate and expand in other areas without sacrificing the excellence in what you are or what you want to be renowned for. Wow. You know, I have to tell you, we've been chatting now for a little over 45 minutes, and these conversations are the kind of conversations, number one, that I strive and hope to have in the podcast here, Mm -hmm. and that give me hope for our future. So thank you. <laughs> I really enjoyed this conversation as well. It's, uh, uh, I love being able to talk with folks who are like-minded, who, uh, who have an eye on the future with some, with some feet and some practical reality in the present and are just trying to solve, like solve for that gap yeah. uh, and doing it in a meaningful way and really in a, in a, in a personal way like this. So I, I enjoy and and welcome these types of questions and these types of conversations. It really gives me life. Yeah. Right back at you, man. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Eddie. You're welcome. It was a a pleasure being on it. And how can our listeners find out more about you and find you? So uh, on on the web, it's just www.edengreen.com, like Garden of Eden, uh, green.com, all one word. And then uh, on the social handles, they're all Eden Green Tech. Uh, so on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, Eden Green Tech. And then me personally, I'm at Eddie Badrina uh, at E-D-D-Y, uh, Badrina, B-A-D-R-I-N-A, on the socials uh, or Badrina.com. Perfect. Perfect, perfect. And you can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Eden Green. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. 
In the words of Vincent van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.